Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I'd invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 5 as we first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your word is a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, the NASB says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Please be seated. So last week, we covered Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. In that sermon titled, The Seven Steps of Prayer Preparation, we read that in the midst of adversity, King David prepared to pray. He prepared to step into the presence of God. And what happens now in verses 4 to 12, Psalm number 5, verses 4 to 12, David actually makes his prayer to God, and that prayer has polarity, meaning David alternates from looking at God to looking at others to looking at himself and ultimately casting his eyes and fixing them on God Almighty. And the big idea of the prayer David makes in Psalm number 5 is this. 
David is not only seeking protection from the wicked people around him, he's also seeking God's protection that David doesn't become like them. And the first thing that David says is this, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The Bible is crystal clear. Evil is never abstract. Evil is never philosophical. Evil is not an idea that someone has in their mind. In the world of the Bible, evil is real. It's palpable. It's tangible. You can see it, and it hurts when you feel evil's effects. And the way the Bible defines evil, the Hebrew root isn't a word that by itself has substance. Evil in the Bible is defined by its lack, meaning a lack of good, a lack of morality, a lack of purity. So in the same way darkness isn't darkness by itself, it's merely the absence of light. Evil is defined by its lack. And this is how evil and a good God can coexist. Because God never created evil. God never made evil. He made those who made of choice. And as a result of their choice, i.e. the devil, they turned away from God. They turned away from obedience. And in that turning away... They turned away from purity. They turned away from totality. And in now, in their deficiency, what resulted is evil. And that's how evil in a good God can coexist in the same world. But the good news is that even though evil does exist, it still falls under the sovereign rule of God Almighty. And just as the holiness of God is alien to you and I. No evil dwells in God. Therefore, evil is alien to God. The next thing David says is, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. This is why preachers don't preach on Psalm 5. This is why people purposefully avoid teaching about Psalm number 5 because it uses sharp language. It has the two words that we may find offensive, hate and abhor. And this is not a mistake. David didn't make a mistake in using words. The Bible uses language for a purpose. The same terminology is also used in Psalm 11.5 and 45.7. So when the Bible says hate, what does it mean? It means deteth, loathe, be hostile, intense, dislike. When it says abhor, it means to hate with a low opinion of the value of an object. You may have heard the saying before, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. You've heard that, right? Who told you that? 
because that's bad theology. What does the text say? Does it say God, does it say that God hates iniquity? Or does it, God, does it say that God hates the person who does iniquity? Who's in hell right now, beloved? Is it sin or is it sinners? Who is God going to judge in the end of days? Is it sin or is it the people who did that sin? Here is the biblical truth. God hates sin and takes no pleasure in it, no matter how it's dressed up. He doesn't think sin is cute. He never turns a blind eye and shrugs his shoulder and says, sin is not a big deal. Let's make sure we're clear about something. The cross, which was God's act of grace, never changed God's attitude towards sin. God never stopped being holy. God never stopped being just. What the cross did do is change what you or I can now do about our sin. Now we can profess faith in Jesus Christ, and the penalty now owed to God is nil. But God is unchanging, and a holy God will never. There is no partiality with God, and the holiness of God abhors sin. God hates sin. Therefore, how can anyone say they love God if they love what he hates? If a person loves what God hates, then how can God love that person? This is not your typical sermon. This is not something you hear every Sunday. And people avoid Psalm number 5 because, once again, the language is brutal. The language is sharp. The language is undiluted. We find the word hate in Psalm number 5 offensive. Why? There are four reasons. The first reason is this. We forgot who God really is. Beloved, if God didn't hate sin, he wouldn't be God. If God didn't hate sin, he would be like us. And if God was like us, he couldn't save us. If he was like us, now he'd be more approachable. Now he wouldn't be holy. Now he'd be someone that we can relate to. But if that was the case, then salvation would not be of the Lord. The worst news a sinner could ever embrace in this world is the holiness of God. And the holiness of God radically detests sin. He hates sin in a radical way that all those who delight in evil are denied the gift of his presence. And God cannot betray his people by having a double standard. The reason why God can tell us, thou shall and thou shall not, is because he's holy and he abhors 
sin. If God didn't have that posture, he wouldn't have a right to tell us, thou shall and thou shall not. We find the word hate in Psalm number 5 offensive. Why? Reason number two, because we forgot who we really are. Psalm 97.10 doesn't give a suggestion. It doesn't give a loose guideline. It gives us an imperative command, and it says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. It's a command. Hate evil. Because when you love God, that means loving what God loves and hating what God hates. It is impossible to truly love God and host Jesus Christ in the master bedroom while the devil is in the basement. And this word hate, once again, we already have the definition. It's more than a casual dislike. It is forceful, it is deep-seated, and it has conviction. Because when you really know who God is, and therefore really know who you are, one of the worst things you could ever imagine is what it feels like for a sinner to fall in the hands of an angry God. Now I'm going to use human language now. It's one thing when we say God hates immorality for those who delight in it. But what, how do you think God feels when Christians sin? How do you think God feels when church leaders sin? How do you think God feels when someone gets on a pulpit on a Sunday morning and actually encourages other people to sin, when they encourage sin in the name of the Lord. And just in case we are unclear, the more you grow, the more you get to know God and therefore have a better assessment of yourself, the more mature you become in your Christian walk and sanctification, your sensitivity to sin is going to increase, where you now begin making a bigger and bigger deal out of small indiscretions, because as your heart mirrors God's, you will love what he loves and hate what he hates. We find the word hate offensive, third reason, because we don't understand who God hates. What does the text say? It says, you, God, hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. The King James uses the word, the workers of iniquity, these doers of evil. Here's the bottom line. All sin equals sin. All iniquity equals iniquity. But there are some individuals who make a business of sin, who make a lifestyle of sin, and they also delight watching others fall. The workers of iniquity have a problem differentiating between what's mine and what's yours, what's mine and what's thine. And they don't mind devising schemes and plans, destroying people, destroying communities, destroying nations, destroying ethnicities, 
So their schemes and systems purposely designed to oppress people are meant to draw others into an open grave. God abhors these workers of iniquity because here's the thing. There's a difference between just repeating something you've heard. There's a difference between just passing along a lie. There's a difference between that and actually being the person who manufactures the lie. Being the person who develops the lie, packages it, and then develops a distribution network to spread it throughout the entire world. These workers of iniquity are the ones purposely scheming to create the evil, to create the lie, to delude others into following it. And this same theme is echoed in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Pay attention to the imperative words that the text uses. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. We find the word hate in Psalm number 5 offensive because we don't understand who God hates, who God abhors, and those individuals are the workers of iniquity who are the manufacturers of the schemes and deceits that trip other people up. There's something called Coxsackie virus. It's a simple virus that kids tend to get where mom and dad bring their kids in, they have a little bit of a fever, runny nose, and Coxsackie virus is also known as hand, foot, and mouth disease, where kids have sores in their mouth, they have these bumps on their hands and bumps on their feet. Now, mom and dad are always bent out of shape. They're going crazy thinking their kids has a catastrophic disease, and we always reassure them, mom, dad, no, little Johnny's gonna be okay. Just give him some Motrin, you know, here's some mouthwash to make his mouth feel better. The virus, hand, foot, and mouth disease, is self-limiting, meaning if you do nothing, it'll just go away, they'll recover, and by the weekend, they'll be fine. That's natural, hand, foot, and mouth disease, which isn't a big deal. Then there's spiritual hand, foot, and mouth disease. What does the text say? There are workers who do iniquity, meaning they use their hands. They can't stand before God, meaning they have a foot problem. And they speak lies, meaning they have a mouth problem. They have spiritual hand, foot, and mouth disease. And someone who suffers from spiritual hand, foot, and mouth disease, who is a worker of iniquity, who delights in it, can never stand in the presence of a holy God. Because God never says, never mind to sin. And these workers of iniquity will never be able to stand the bright light of God's true understanding. 
The fourth reason why we find the word hate offensive in Psalm number five is because we don't understand how God hates. When we hear the word hate in 21st century America, we think of badness. We think of hate groups. We think of hate speech. We think of hate crimes. We think of someone who's unhinged, who's angry, who's full of wrath, who does something that's purposefully evil and designed to hurt another person or group of people. But God's hatred of sin is not emotional. It's judicial. Let me say that one more time. God's hatred of sin is not emotional. It's judicial. And real fellowship with God means understanding his judicial hatred of evil. If someone came into a court of law and they murdered someone, murder is absolutely wrong. It's against the law. There are legal codes that say murdering someone is bad. It doesn't matter how that judge feels. It doesn't matter if that judge thinks the murderer is a nice guy. It doesn't matter if the judge thinks the guy who committed the crime had a bad upbringing. The fact of the matter is it's not an emotional matter. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of the law. And when God, who is holy, defines what is absolutely right and what is absolutely wrong, when you do something absolutely wrong, God doesn't like it. It's not a matter of feeling. It's not a matter of reactive emotion. It's the holiness of God animating his justice. Because as Romans 3 tells us, there is no partiality with God. So the bottom line is this. God abhors sin, and he abhors those who delight in it. However, but on the other hand... Is the hatred of God the end of the story? Who is writing the psalm? David. Was David a sinner? Yup. He was a pretty great one at that. So wait a minute. Let's understand this. How can these things be? How can a man who is obviously, everyone knows about this, how can a man who is clearly a sinner write a psalm about God who says he abhors sin? This doesn't make any sense because by definition, David should be the one being wiped out. And here's the thing we have to understand. What I hope I've done in the last several minutes is expand your theology of sin, is expand your appreciation of how catastrophically destructive sin is and how much God abhors it. God's abhorrence for sin is millions and millions of light years big. It fills the entire universe. It spans from one end of the cosmos to the other. But here's the thing. Until you appreciate how destructive sin is, until you appreciate how much God abhors sin, 
then you will never appreciate how much bigger God's grace is. Because as Romans says, where there is much sin, grace abounds. So if you have a small theology of sin and think sin is eh, not a big deal, all you need now is eh, a little bit of grace, which is wrong. Sin is incomprehensibly massive and God abhors all of it. And once you understand that, now you can appreciate how awesome and limitless His grace is. When you have a proper theology of sin, you understand sin warps our DNA. Sin gives us predispositions to certain diseases. Sin causes terrorism. Sin causes racism. Sin causes people to run from the Bible. Sin causes us to have a visceral reaction when we read the word hate in the Bible. Sin causes us to run for duck and cover whenever we encounter a hard saying in the Bible, something that we may believe is hard to understand. And you can never ever appreciate the grace of God until you depreciate the utter depravity of sin. Yes, beloved, God abhors sin, but he himself came into this world to die for sinners. Because it's not the wrath, it's not the judgment, it's not the hatred of God that triumphs, it's the love of God that triumphs in His grace. Now once again, David was the one writing the psalm. The same David who slew Goliath. The same David who was three times anointed to be king of the unified monarchy of Israel. But despite all of that, Despite that he was a harpist and the psalmist, all of that, all of that in the end didn't matter. Because David knew there was one, there was only at its core one thing that separated him from all the workers of iniquity he was looking at in the world. And that one thing, as I've said before, is the most important word in the entire cosmos. That one thing was the Hesed was the grace, was the steadfast love and loving kindness of God. The next thing David says is, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, by your abundant Hesed, God, I will enter your house at your holy temple. I will bow in reverence for you. David knew what separated him from everyone else wasn't based on his merits. It was based on the grace of God alone. And here's the thing you will now appreciate once you have a proper theology of sin. You can measure, you can quantify God's wrath. You can actually measure his hate. Psalm 5 tells us what God abhors. Proverbs 6 told us it defined the limits of the things that God hates. But you can't measure God's grace. His judgments are numbered, but his mercies are innumerable. His judgments are finite. His grace is infinite. You can put God's wrath and hatred of sin in a formula, but you can never ever measure His grace. 
And David says he bows in reverence to God Almighty because he had an earnest biblical fear of God. That's what distinguished David having a vain confidence in his flesh versus true acknowledgement of God's grace. David said, it is by your grace, O Lord, I will now enter into your presence, and when I do, I will not boast. I will simply bow in reverence to you, because even the giant slayer, even the thrice-anointed king of Israel, even he needed grace. What does that say about you and me? And David, being a natural king, he was giving us a good model. Because he being the natural king, the one with the power, the one with the prestige, the one who didn't have any natural authority to answer to, even he bowed down to the greater king. And here's what's the most interesting part. David saying this verse in Psalm number 5, verse number 7, means a lot. Because guess what? David being a king, he could have become a worker of iniquity and gotten away with it. Because there was no Supreme Court to answer to. He was the Supreme Court. There was no lawyer who would bring a case against David because he was the one who gave the lawyer orders. He was the one at the top of the power structure, but he could actually have gotten away with all of those things, which is why he now comes into God's presence saying, Lord... It is by your grace alone, because David was being honest, he knew that the workers of iniquity around them, all of their plots and schemes were what? They were tempting, they were alluring, all the evil around him was tempting, so David now comes to God and says, Lord, lead me in your way, because what is the next thing that David says? He says, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. David says this because to go the crooked way, to go the not straight way, to become a worker of iniquity was something that was tempting all around him. And he needed God's grace to lead him in the way that was straight. Because in a world full of crooked ways, doing the crooked thing and walking the crooked way was normal. And isn't it ironic that we are now eight verses into the psalm and the first thing that David asks God is, Lord, lead me in thy way. Not my way, Lord, but thy way. Because the straight way is always the right way, but is not often the popular one nor the easy one. And David implores God to lead me in your righteousness. Because he recognized, had God not done that, it would have been impossible for him not to be entangled in the schemes of the workers of iniquity. So David begins the psalm preparing to pray. He then looks at others doing wickedness in the world. He then looks at himself, and now he casts a gaze on those others in the world doing evil. And he says, there is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. When David uses the language open grave, this is what he means. 
In, is, in Jewish culture at the time, there was a big deal in regards to cleanliness and uncleanliness. A dead body was unclean. A gravesite was unclean. So instead of having different graves all over the landscape and making the landscape unclean, they would have designated spots that would be open graves. So there'd only be one designated unclean place. And they would always be open, an open grave or sepulcher. So when someone passed away, they'd go into this grave and put them down on a slab and leave it open and let that body rot until all that was left was their bones and they would bury the bones. So if you walked into a gravesite or an open sepulcher, you know what you would smell? Death. And if you've never smelled a decaying human body before, it is the most abhorrent smell you can imagine. It would be a stench that you would find repulsive. And guess what? After this open grave was done consuming one dead body, you know what happened next? Now the next dead body comes. Its appetite for destroying bodies was insatiable. It was one after the other, after the other, after the other. So when he says there's nothing reliable in what they say, their mouth is like an open grave. Out of the destruction on the inside emanates the stench and the words that they use seek to destroy with an unquenchable thirst and desire. And the words that they use not only destroy people, they rob people of their desire to live. And since this grave was open, how easy would it have been for David to fall into one? That's why he asks God to leave him in the way that is straight, so he won't detour into an open grave. Now here's what's interesting. David says these individuals have destruction on the inside. And that destruction on the inside animates words that are foul and reprehensible. Here's what this Bible verse tells us. If you really want to know what's inside someone's heart, if you really want to know what someone's about, just take a step back, be quiet, and listen to what they say. Because eventually, what's truly in their heart of hearts is going to come out in their Language. The Bible makes an acute emphasis of drawing our attention to our speech. Do you know why? Because speech is uniquely human. Only human beings, the apex of the created order, only we have the ability to use speech in the form of language. And speech is the cheapest, most cost-effective way to destroy someone. Telling the truth is intimately related with being a servant of God. Because when the spirit of truth dwells in you and you meditate on the word of God, which is true, and that abides in you, you now have truth on the inside, therefore truth comes out of you. If you reject God and have destruction and deceit on the inside, invariably what's going to come out is lies and deceit. 
And when David says human counsel, David says there's nothing reliable in what they say, meaning human counsel from the wicked is utterly unreliable. And Paul uses the same phrase, that their throat is an open grave, in Romans 3.13, where he basically looks at the world and says, there is nothing reliable in what the wicked say, and all have fallen guilty before God. He uses this verse not, and doesn't apply it to David's enemies. He applies it to the entire world. There is nothing reliable in what they say. And here is how Psalm number 5 gives us clarity in the 21st century. There are only two schools of knowledge. There is naturalism and there is supernaturalism. Naturalism is based on human counsel. Naturalism is based on a worldview that lives without God. And David is saying there is nothing reliable in what they, in what naturalism says. There is always something reliable in supernaturalism, in what God, who is supernatural, reveals to us. Beloved, we have to understand something. When communists and capitalists fight... In essence, both schools of thought are the same thing. It's naturalism. When Republicans and Democrats fight, at the end of the day, it's all naturalism. When conservatism, when liberalism, when libertarianism, whatever ism you want to talk about, at the end of the day, it's all the same thing. It's naturalism. It's natural human beings trying to solve natural problems with their natural minds. And ultimately, there is nothing reliable in what they say. The only time naturalism works is when it's based upon supernaturalism. The assassination of Martin Luther King was the beginning of this month. He was killed 50 years ago. Many people don't realize this. He had some funny spiritual ideas, but he undoubtedly was a great political reformer. Many people regard him as one of the uh, most forward-looking political reformers in the last 100 years. Do you know why Martin Luther King's civil rights program works? He had the idea, he saw a moral crisis in America, and he basically said, in order to affect drastic moral change, there's going to be violence, because all dramatic change involves violence. He said, in order for this change to happen, there has to be suffering. But he said, I'm not going to make others suffer. I'm not going to make the world suffer. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to absorb the hate. I'm going to absorb the name-calling. I'm going to be rejected and despised and let everyone unleash their wrath on me and everyone who follows me so they wouldn't have to. I'm going to be that vacuum of hatred so that moral change can happen in this country. Now you tell me, where would Martin Luther King get the idea that in order to affect of drastic change, he would suffer so no one else would. That is a theology of the cross animating 
a political reform. It's supernaturalism that informs naturalism. That's why it worked. The only thing that'll ever work is if supernaturalism informs it because we are living in God's world. So unless we use God's wisdom to guide our natural lives, ultimately then, there is nothing reliable in what they say. The next thing David says is, Hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. When he says, hold them guilty, them refers to the same people he talked about in verses 4 to 6. And when, God, when David says, hold them guilty, he calls on God to both judge them and to enact an appropriate judicial sentence. If I got up here on a Sunday morning and I said, thou shall not use your iPhone for one week, I'm not holy and just. I'm a nobody. Who am I to tell you that you can't use your iPhone for a week? I don't have the appropriate essence or being to make that command legitimate. I also have no legal authority as a judge to enact that rule. And guess what? I can't enforce that mandate. I'm not going to be in your house looking over your shoulder, watching to see if you use your iPhone. But who is now God? God is now holy and just. God is now a a just judge who does, as the author and creator of the universe, he does have the legal authority to tell us thou shall and thou shall not. And God is omnipotent, meaning he has the power to enforce the rules that he enacts. So when David appeals to God and says, hold them guilty. He's appealing to the just judge who has the power to not only tell us what's right and what's wrong, but to also act based upon those who do right and based upon those who do wrong. This this is why right and wrong ultimately matter. Because God is the one who tells us what's right and what's wrong. And ultimately... A life that is full of righteousness and a life that is full of not righteousness in eternity will really matter because the one who gives it to us has the power to do so. The next thing David says is the second reason why most people don't preach on Psalm number 5. He gives what's called an imprecation when he says, by their own devices let them fall. What's an imprecation? An imprecation is a plea for judgment or calamity to fall on another person or a group of people. The Jews would say an imprecation is basically when one person curses another. And people don't like imprecations. They say this is mean. They say it's unjust. They say it's unchristian if someone ever uses an imprecation. But when David calls to God and says, hold them guilty, this isn't an idea that David developed by himself. 
He is basically calling upon God to act as a judge based on justice that God has already revealed. So David using this imprecation basically means he looks back to what God has already said. And based upon God's already revealed standard of justice, he says, God, they have now violated your laws. They have violated what is right. Now, God, hold them guilty. Now, pastor, isn't this Old Testament? Wasn't David under the law? Isn't all of this legalistic? Isn't all of this falling under an error that never applies to us anymore because of the cross? Yes, this was in the Old Testament. Yes, this did fall in the Mosaic era when the people were under the law. But here's the thing. Why would we ever, in the New Testament era, ever allow a Jew to do more under the law than we would do under grace. For if we truly love God and delight and love what he loves and hate what he hates, that means we're going to take right and wrong seriously and actually do what is right and actually stay away from doing what is wrong. So when we therefore see absolute wrong in the world... It should convict us on the inside and compel us to entreat and implore God to say, God, this is wrong. Now you being just, hold those who are rebelling against you, hold them guilty. We live in an era now where every day that we look at the newspaper, there is another woman coming forward saying, I was the victim of assault. Every day there is a new case. People are resigning. Men are leaving their positions in positions of power. Now just imagine if one of these women walked into a courtroom and said, Judge, this is my accusation. This man did A, B, and C to me. And she says, look, here's the evidence. Here are the eyewitnesses. And this woman now says to the judge, hold them guilty. They did something absolutely, positively wrong. Now hold them guilty. This woman is now doing what? What is legally right. What is legally just. And if that judge now acts based upon what someone else did that was wrong, and he judges the offender, he's now doing what? He is now being a just judge. If he doesn't do anything, now he's acting like an unjust judge judge. So this woman who sees absolute wrong in bringing her case to a judge is simply following just legal procedure. And the final thing David says in verse number 10 is that they, the workers of iniquity, they are rebellious against you. They are rebellious against God. David is not saying this imprecation as a means of seeking personal vengeance. He has taken himself out of the picture. But he says those who have done something absolutely wrong, they are rebelling against God himself. Their ultimate sin then was their rebellion against God. And because David's heart 
pants after God. He simply cannot look at absolute wrong. He simply cannot look at injustice in the world and simply shrug his shoulders. That's why he's coming to God in prayer. All throughout the New Testament, beloved, Jesus tells us we are to pray for our enemies. We are to forgive our enemies. If someone does evil to us, we never return that evil with more evil. The Bible is clear that vengeance isn't mine. Vengeance is thine. Vengeance is God's. As I've said before in Sunday school, the power of an imprecation is that it saves the world from wild, wild west Christians who want to take vengeance into their own hands. You would never have to worry about a Christian walking into any place and saying, I'm going to blow up sinners. Never. Because we, don't, we are unjust. We don't trust ourselves to execute justice. We put that in the, in the hands of a just judge and say, God, you are holy. Now hold them guilty. And when it comes to forgiving enemies, beloved, as I've said, Jesus time and time again tells us to pray for and to forgive our enemies, our human natural enemies. But it is never in our spiritual power to forgive God's enemies. Satan is God's enemy. We are never called to forgive Satan. We forgive our enemies 7 times 70 times 700 times 7,000. But those who are rebellious against God, that is now a relationship that that person must deal with, with themselves and God alone. Because we cannot truly adore and serve God and treat lightly those who openly rebel against God Almighty. And I mentioned in the devotional time this morning about what they're doing in California right now with Assembly Bill 2943, which is trying to ban the Bible, which is trying to criminalize any pastor, which is trying to throw in jail anyone who preaches or teaches the biblical mode of sexuality. Ultimately, beloved, the legislatures in California, they're not rebelling against me. They're not rebelling against the people of California. They're not rebelling against a natural institution. They are rebelling against God himself. And the most graceful thing God could do in someone who purposefully, willfully rebels against him is to humble them now so that they repent. Because if he doesn't and he waits and they experience the natural death, then it is just too late. And before we leave this imprecation alone, who would have been the original listening audience for this psalm? If you look at the superscription for Psalm number 5, it says, for the winded instruments or the flutes. This would have been a psalm sung in the temple, which means Egyptians wouldn't have heard it, 
Greeks wouldn't have heard it. Romans wouldn't have heard it. The Jebusites wouldn't have heard it. The Philistines wouldn't have heard it. The Babylonians wouldn't have heard it. Wait a minute. The people who would have heard Psalm number 5 were Jews. So the original listening audience for the psalm would have been God's people, the Jews. They would have been hearing, hold them guilty by their own transgressions, thrust them out. Meaning, Psalm number 10 wouldn't have persuaded them to do other scrutiny. It would have compelled them to do self-scrutiny and look at themselves in the mirror. David closes by saying, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. David began his prayer seeking help for himself. He ends in seeking help for God's people. And the hope of David is that God's judgment of the wicked will provide the righteous with greater reason to rejoice. When we in our prayer say, Thy will be done, when we cast our eyes on God and say, Thy will be done, we have to understand what that means. Because when we say, Thy will be done, ultimately, in the end, in the end times, God's will will be done. His will will be executed. So when David writes, He's going to take refuge and find shelter in God. Ultimately, in the end, those who profess faith in Christ will find ultimate refuge in Jesus Christ. And the ultimate triumph of Christ will also mean the ultimate defeat of evil. When the kingdom of heaven invades the kingdom of earth, That also comes with the realization that all the workers of iniquity, Satan and his minions, will be forever cast down and cast away. So in a sense, beloved, when we pray, thy will be done, yes, we're praying for God and his righteous will to be enacted, so we will all find ultimate refuge and shelter in God. But realize what that also means. Realize that also means we are praying for the ultimate, eternal, final defeat of evil, where God finally will thrust them out. Because in the end, there will be a line that is drawn between absolute good and absolute evil. And absolute good cannot triumph unless absolute evil is also defeated. The final thing David says is, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. David used the shield language in Psalm number 3, but this shield is better. This shield is invincible and cannot be broken. And this shield, because it surrounds David, this shield is a shield to your shield. So you can armor up in the full armor of God with the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. But by God's favor, he now forms a shield around you with your full armor of God on. And we therefore find hope 
in the midst of adversity being defended by the hand of God himself. And we will therefore not suffer from spiritual hand, foot, and mouth disease because when we are surrounded by God, we will stand. And we will not fall. For God beautifies the meek with salvation. He loves the workers of righteousness. And he shall preserve those who bow in reverence to him. Let's pray. Psalm 56 says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. We thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you, O Lord, for your light. And we thank you, O Lord, for your truth. Truly we know there are some parts of your word, there are some parts of the Bible that are far harder, that are much more challenging to digest than others. But we ask you by your grace, Holy Spirit, to illuminate our minds and allow us to see your truth and allow us to see your true character as taught here today, O Lord, and allow the meaningfulness, allow the impact, allow us to meditate and chew and digest on your word so we will not flee from it but we shall run to you, everything you stand for, and all the truth contained in your inerrant word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.